Chapter 19 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 19 The Revelations of Starlight. When we cast an upward glance to the heavens and look at the stars, we little realize what may be called the revelations of starlight. We little imagine that in the rays of the stars are born to us most of the secrets of the universe, and that the light rays from immensity tell us a story which for wonder, mystery, and majesty is unrivaled in the realms of the imagination. In the chapter on the sun, reference was made to the spectroscopic method of observing that luminary, and to the knowledge which has been gained from a study of the band of colored light known as the solar spectrum. It is much more difficult to observe the spectra of the various stars than the spectrum of the sun, owing to the relative feebleness of starlight. However, since 1863, astronomers have made rapid progress in this branch of knowledge. In that year, the late Sir William Huggins commenced his work in this department by a particular study of two stars of the first magnitude, Betelgeuse and Aldebaran. In the former star he ascertained the existence of the elements sodium, iron, calcium, magnesium, and bismuth, and in the latter the same elements with the addition of tellurium, antimony, and mercury. Thus, for the first time, the rays of starlight had revealed to humanity the constitution of the suns of space. Secchi, a well-known Italian astronomer, made classification of the stars in the heavens about the same time that Sir William Huggins started his observations. It was known many years before that just as the sun had a different spectrum from any of the stars, so the stars differed among themselves. It was shown, however, by Secchi, that the stars could be divided into four well-defined groups, white stars, yellow stars, red stars, and dark red stars, according to the variations in their spectra. Although other more scientific classifications have since been proposed and adopted, the first classification gives us a general idea of the different types of stars. When we turn our eyes to the heavens, we see that the stars are not all of the same color. We at once know the bluish-white of Sirius, the red color of Betelgeuse, the orange-red hue of Aldebaran. When we consider the bright stars according to their spectra, we find that Sirius, Vega, Rigel, Altair, Regulus are included in the class known as the white stars, or Syrian stars, from their brightest example. In the second type are included Capella, Arcturus, Aldebaran, Procyon, Pollux, and the Pole Star. The spectrum of our Sun, in fact, is of this type, and hence this class of orbs is known as the group of solar, or yellow, stars. The stars of the third type are much less numerous. Betelgeuse and Antares are the most notable representatives of this type. The fourth type includes stars of a deeper red, none of which are bright enough to command the attention of the casual observer. The first type has been subdivided by the late Dr. Vogel into two subclasses, the Orion type and the Syrian type. The stars of the Orion type are so-called because most of the stars in the constellation Orion are of that class. They are distinguished by the presence in their atmospheres of the element helium. 
Rigel, in Orion, is one of the typical stars of this group, and a massive and gigantic orb it appears to be. Its mass is no less than 34,000 times that of the Sun, the enormous orb whose size overwhelms the minds of mortals. Rigel, however, as the late Miss Clerk pointed out, quote, is not massive in the proportion of its luminosity, end quote. It gives about 8,000 times more light than our Sun. Quote, but the Sun is dimmed to about one-third of its native luster by the effects of absorption, which are virtually absent from the star. Hence, a total light emission 8,000 times greater would represent a radiating surface only 2,667 times more expansive than the solar photosphere. Stars of the helium variety are composed of highly rarefied materials. End quote. Sirius and Vega may be taken as typical stars of the second subdivision of stars of the first type. Stars of the solar type are of various sizes. Alpha Centauri, one of our nearest neighbors in space, seems to be a sun in many respects similar to our own. Another star of the solar type which deserves mention is Arcturus, or Alpha, of the constellation Botes. Its spectrum is of the solar type, but so far as size is concerned, as mentioned in the last chapter, it dwarfs the sun to utter insignificance, and apparently belongs to a higher order of suns than the ruler of our own planetary system. In a work like the present, it is obviously impossible to present the technical details of the researches of astronomers on the spectra of the stars. One interesting discovery may be mentioned. It might be supposed that stars of the different types are scattered over the sky at random, but such is not the case. The white stars congregate on the whole in a definite region of the heavens, that marked by the Milky Way, or galaxy, while the solar stars are on the whole distributed with some approach to uniformity. The meaning of this difference in distribution of the two types will be unfolded in a later chapter. Although most of our knowledge of starlight is due to the marvelous revelations of the spectroscope, a considerable amount of knowledge has been gained from a study of starlight by the telescope, and indeed by the unaided eye. Perhaps the most remarkable objects in the heavens are the new or temporary stars, orbs which blaze out in the sky where no previous stars have been seen, and which then sink into invisibility. Many instances of temporary stars have been recorded. A temporary star is believed to have appeared in the year 134 BC and to have suggested to Hipparchus, the famous Greek astronomer, the idea of forming a catalogue of stars. The first temporary star, however, of which we have any authentic record, was observed by Tycho Brahe and is always known as Tycho's star. The famous Danish astronomer was not, however, the discoverer of the star. It was detected by a German at Wittenberg on August 6, 1572, whereas Tycho did not notice it until November 11. Looking up to the sky one evening, Tycho was astounded to see the appearance of the well-known constellation Cassiopeia entirely changed by the appearance of a new and brilliant star, far outshining the other stars of the group. When first seen by Tycho Brahe, the new star was brighter than Jupiter, and when it reached its greatest visibility, it was fully equal to Venus. So bright, indeed, was the new star, that in a clear sky, it was visible in full daylight. In March 1574, 
it ceased to be visible to the unaided eye. Another bright star, usually associated with the name of Kepler, appeared in 1604. On 10th October of that year, one of Kepler's pupils noticed that a new and brilliant star had made its appearance in the constellation Ophincus. The planets Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn were close together in the same constellation, and it was easy to make comparisons between the new star and the planets. It was estimated as brighter than Mars and Jupiter, and indeed as equal to Venus. The star, which was also studied by Galileo, disappeared in March 1606, having been visible for about 17 months. These two stars were the brightest temporary stars recorded in history. The next authentic instance of a similar object was the appearance of a much less imposing stellar phenomenon. By the middle of the 19th century, the discovery of temporary stars was a much easier matter than at the time of Galileo, owing to the increased power of telescopes as well as the increased number of astronomers. The star detected by the English observer Hind on April 28, 1848, never exceeded the fifth magnitude in brilliancy. More striking was the star of 1866, popularly known as Blaze Star. John Birmingham, an amateur astronomer at Tom in Ireland, observing the heavens with the unaided eye on the evening of May 12, 1866, detected a brilliant star in the constellation Corona Borealis. It was then of the second magnitude and equal in brilliance to the brightest star of the constellation. It must have increased very rapidly, for Schmidt of Athens, one of the most competent observers of the day, affirmed that when he scanned the same part of the sky four hours earlier, it was not then visible, although he was sure that no strange star brighter than fifth magnitude could have escaped his notice. This star was notable from the fact that for the first time the newly invented spectroscope was applied to the study of temporary stars. The star was particularly studied by Sir William Huggins, who discerns four brilliant lines in the spectrum. The principal line represented hydrogen. It was thus obvious that the cause of the outburst was the eruption of vast masses of hydrogen gas. The new star declined very rapidly in brilliance, although not so rapidly as it increased. Nine days after its appearance, it was invisible to the unaided eye. The remarkable thing about this star was that it was not actually a temporary star in the true sense of the word, as it had been observed ten years earlier as an ordinary telescopic star invisible to the unaided eye. The appearance of this star caused much interest among astronomers. The marvelous feature of the outburst was that in a few hours the star increased its brilliance by about 900 times. Mr. Peck, astronomer of the city of Edinburgh, has the following remarks in this connection. Quote, what would likely be the result if a conflagration like that, which took place on this remote sun, were at any time to happen to our sun? Not only would all the various forms of life on Earth be utterly destroyed, but on all the members of our solar system there would be such a change effected that if any life existed even on the remote Neptune, it would at once be completely extinguished. Probably the life that existed on the whole system of worlds that circled round this distant star must have been annihilated. 
and as the heat and light of this star increased so very suddenly, there could have been given but short warning to the inhabitants of these worlds. End quote. Another new star made its appearance ten years later. On November 24, 1876, Schmidt noticed a strange star of the third magnitude in Cygnus. It was closely similar to the new star of 1866, hydrogen being present in abundance. A new star which appeared in Andromeda in 1885 is interesting from the fact that an attempt was made to measure its distance from the solar system. So vast, however, was this distance that the attempt was a failure. The next temporary star was detected in January 1892 in the constellation Auriga by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh, a famous observer of variable stars. At the time of discovery, it was of the fifth magnitude. Remarkably enough, this new star had been visible to the unaided eye for some time before Dr. Anderson's discovery, but had never been noticed. It had imprinted its image on photographs taken in America by Professor Pickering. These photographs showed that on November 20th it was a little over the fourth magnitude. It then began to decline, and when discovered visually, it was of the fifth magnitude. Then, after its discovery, it brightened up again, and on February 14th was between the fourth and fifth magnitudes. After this, it steadily declined until April when it was of the 15th magnitude, but in August, astronomers were astounded to find that it had again increased, this time to the 9th. Since then, it has steadily diminished. A number of insignificant temporary stars made their appearance between 1892 and 1901, being mostly detected by photography. These are of little interest except to the professional astronomer, and may be passed over here. But on February 21st, 1901, a magnificent temporary star, the most brilliant since Kepler's in 1604, shone out in the constellation Perseus. It was so brilliant as to be detected by a number of independent observers, including Dr. Anderson, the discoverer of the previous new star, and Mr. J. E. Gore. When first seen by Dr. Anderson, it was of the second magnitude and a photograph taken of the previous evening showed that it must have been then below the twelfth magnitude, as it was invisible on the photograph. On the evening of February 23rd, the star was equal to Capella and of the first magnitude. But it did not long retain its preeminence. By March 1st it was of the second magnitude, and by March 6th of the third. In September it faded to the sixth magnitude, while in March 1902, it was of the 8th magnitude, and in July, of the 12th. Since that date, two other new stars have been discovered, both faint, in 1903 and 1905 respectively. Many theories have been advanced to account for temporary stars. The most probable of these various theories is that put forward by Professor Seliger, who regards these outbursts as due to the passage of dark extinct stars through masses of nebulous matter. The dark stars are raised to incandescence through friction, just as the meteors are ignited by passing through the Earth's atmosphere. Temporary stars differ in many respects from variable stars. But one body in the heavens, which seems to belong partly to both classes, deserves mention. This star is known as Eta Argus and is invisible in Europe. 
At present, it is of the seventh magnitude, and cannot be seen without the aid of a telescope. In the 17th century, it was of the fourth magnitude, and a hundred years later of the second, while in 1837 it was equal to the first magnitude star Alpha Centauri. Then it began to decrease. In 1843, however, it again blazed up, and became the second star in the heavens, surpassed only by Sirius. Since then it has steadily declined, and is still inconspicuous. There are many known variable stars in the heavens, the catalogues containing thousands of them. The first variable was first seen in 1596 by Fabricius, a Dutch observer. It is known as Mira Ceti, or the wonderful star of Cetus. It has been thus under observation for over three centuries. Its period is about 331 days, but it is not very regular and sometimes, at its maximum, it is much more brilliant than at other times. For instance, in 1906, it was brighter than the second magnitude. Its variations appear to result from great internal disturbances. There are many stars which appear to vary in much the same manner, designated as variable stars of long periods. Other two classes of variables are known as, quote, algal stars, end quote and short-period variables. The algal variables are so-called from the brightest star of their type, algal, or beta persei. The fluctuations in the light of algal, which occupy 2 days, 20 hours, 48 minutes, 51 seconds, are believed to have been discovered by the ancient Arabian astronomers and were rediscovered by Goodrick, an English astronomer in 1782. Goodrick suggested that the variations in the light of Algol were caused by the partial eclipse of the star's light by the interposition of a dark satellite star, just as the sun's light is cut off by the moon. In modern times, the late Professor Vogel of Potsdam confirmed this theory in a remarkable, indeed marvelous, way by means of the spectroscope. The explanation of this method is rather abstruse, and it is somewhat difficult to comprehend without a knowledge of physics. One of the most remarkable uses of the spectroscope is due to the fact that, by its means, motions may be measured. In 1842, Doppler, a German physicist, expressed the view that the color of a luminous body would be changed by its motion of approach or recession, and that a larger number of light waves would be entering the eye of the observer if the body were approaching than if it were retreating. The late Miss Clerk thus illustrate Doppler's principle, quote, Suppose shots to be fired at a target at fixed intervals of time. If the marksman advances, say, 20 paces between each discharge of his rifle, it is evident that the shots will fall faster on the target than if he stood still. If, on the contrary, he retires by the same amount, they will strike at correspondingly longer intervals." End quote. In an approaching body, the lines of the spectrum will be displaced towards one end of it, on a receding body towards the other. By this method, several astronomers succeeded in measuring the motions of the stars, and it was obvious to Vogel that, as Algol and its satellite are revolving around a common center of gravity, Algol would, before each eclipse, be retreating from our system, and after each eclipse, approaching. Vogel found that such was the case, thus proving the theory conclusively. Not only did he confirm the theory, 
but he has arrived to the conclusion that Algol is a star 1 million miles in diameter, the dark companion being 800,000 miles, about the size of the Sun. The distance between the two is about 3 million miles. From irregularities in the movements of Algol, an American astronomer is of the opinion that Algol and its dark companion revolve around another dark globe in 180 years, at a distance of about 1,800,000,000 miles. Thus, though we have never seen the satellite of Algol, we know that it exists, and though we cannot tell its distance from us, we can tell its probable size. The variable stars of short periods, such as the famous Beta Lyrae, are also explained by the mutual revolution of one or more bodies, and many a thorny question concerning variable stars has been solved by this method. Thus, the study of variable stars indicates the existence of systems of stars, stars in revolution around their center of gravity. This brings us to the subject of the next chapter, Systems of Stars. End of chapter 19